Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week, we have an awesome guest who I I think I promised I would track down somebody from RIP Medical Debt because they kept showing up in the news and innovative approach to dealing with uh, a tremendous problem in America around, I'd say, healthcare and debt. And none other than Allison Cessna, the CEO and president, is joining us. This means a lot. Thank you, Allison, for, for taking the time today. Thanks for hunting us down and finding us. We love talking about our work and, and the issue of, of medical debt. So I appreciate every opportunity. Well, let's drive right into it. On the front page of ripmedicaldebt.org, on the front page of the .org site, I see every $100 donated relieves 10000 in medical debt. First off, that gets my attention. What a perfect way to start a conversation. But how does that work exactly? Yeah, we are a uh, a unique model, and we take advantage of the for-profit uh, debt market uh, and use it for a mission-driven purpose, which is really exciting and, and I think unique. So we do get an incredible return on investment, and it's because there is a market for debt buying uh, that is has been established. And that is because uh, there is a for-profit industry that we take advantage of. Uh, and they are looking to make money off of the issue of debt. We, on the other hand, are trying to relieve debt. So we take donations from individuals, we take them to the debt market, and we buy large portfolios at once. So the individuals that are in those portfolios tend to be financially burdened. They are poor. They are, um, in fact, to qualify for a program, you have to be 400% of poverty or below, or the debt birth burden has to be significant compared to your overall income. So it has to be 5% or more of your income. We do an analysis of the debt portfolio and we buy all of the accounts that qualify. And then we purchase them based on those for-profit rates. And so we're competitive with that market, but because the for-profit folks are trying to make money, they have to really depress the prices and they have to have a really deep discount in order to make sure that they're making their money back. And so we don't have to make our money back. And so we're able to take, you know, one dollar and turn it into a hundred dollars of medical debt relief, and as you pointed out, you can exp- expand that. So you know, five hundred dollars gets rid of fifty um, fifty thousand dollars of medical debt, and so that's how we're able to provide massive debt relief to the tune of seven billion dollars to date and growing. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Maybe I, I'm going to poke a little bit more into like making sure I actually get this. So let's say I'm you know. Family living below the the poverty line, meeting your your standards. There's an unexpected accident, an injury. I then am in the hospital for a few days, and suddenly I'm walking around with forty five grand in debt overnight. And because of the way our systems work, this is now a debt I owe to creditors. Now that debt, as I understand, can first go from the hospital to maybe a secondary buyer. Right? There's like all these markets of like, oh, I'll grab that one. I'll grab that one. And then it seems like they are, there's a discount on it because it's not dollar for dollar. You're getting 100x leverage on it. So there's some discounting of 
my debt with that 45,000. Can you just walk me through like the individual? Like I am sitting here, I've got 45 grand in debt. I can run off to a sort of like GoFundMe type site and be like, please, 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 please pay this money. I have a story. I have a narrative. And unfortunately, I have to compete with other stories around. What is the alternative path that my 45K debt takes in your world? Yeah. So I could buy your debt probably for $45. That's the the difference. It's pretty, you know. I'm sorry. I don't understand. (laughs) I'm sorry. For $450. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So, yeah, I could buy your debt for $450. And that is because I'm not just buying your debt. I am buying the entire provider's portfolio of bad debt. So it's more attractive of an option. So basically, I'm, I'm a hospital or another healthcare provider. I am serving people who can't afford to pay. They are poor, as you just described. And, and it's, by the way, just to be clear, it's 400% of poverty or below. So it's not just at, under poverty, but four times the amount of poverty. So it's people that are poor, but, but not necessarily. Not oh, poverty. so 4X, the whatever, $45,000. Exactly. Depending where you are. Okay. That's not matter. We're really like helping people that are really trying to make ends meet, but are actually uh, technically in poverty based on the fe- federal definition. So you, you know, you, there's, there's, you have to, in order for our model to work, we're buying the entire portfolio of many of those individuals who have the 45000 or $1,000 or $2,000 of debt uh, that all together. So it's source driven. So basically I'm going to the hospital or other healthcare provider and I'm saying, Give me the debts. Give me your entire portfolio of debt that you have tried to collect and you have been unable to collect and mostly been able, unable to collect because the individuals are uh, financially stressed out and can't afford to pay this bill. I will look at that portfolio and I will assess what can I pay for that. And this is if I'm a for-profit, not as RIP medical debt, but as a for-profit debt buyer, I will say, okay, I'm going to pay this. I'm going to pay you an X amount of dollars for the entire portfolio for thousands of people's bad debt on the bet that at least I can squeeze enough out of that Mm -hmm. to make up for the investment that I've made plus, right? Because I'm looking for a profit. And I squeeze those individuals either by calling them, by putting it on their credit, you know, and giving them bad credit, by sometimes suing them and taking, putting liens out on their, um, on their cars, on their vehicles. So I take different tactics to try and collect on that. And so that establishes this debt market and, and establishes a price that is very depressed and discounted. And again, that's what RIP medical debt takes advantage of. So I'm competing with that already depressed price. That is driven by the fact that people are trying to make a profit off of these bad debts. But in my world, I've sort of flipped it on its head and I'm saying, I will pay the same as the for profits, but I'm not trying to make a profit. I'm just trying to provide relief. So I'm going to take donated dollars so I don't need to make any money back. I'm going to go to that same debt market. I'm going to say, give me all of the bad debts that you have available. I'm going to pull out the ones that are for which is most of them, like 80% oftentimes of people who are financially uh, struggling, and I will pay you this amount. And I pay based on usually the debt is um, the older it is, the cheaper it is, because the idea is it is outstanding, puts a higher discount on the property. I'm I'm paying like, you know, a million dollars for, you know, $300 million worth of debt in one cell swoop. And so it's thousands of people that are getting helped at once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
staying with the story here, I have incurred this 45000 I have not been able to pay it back in 30, 90, 180 days. I am within that window of one to four X, the poverty level. And do you like show up at my daughter with like an oversized check? Is it like, uh, so like, how am I notified that like, Hey, you're suddenly like, you don't owe this anymore. Like, how does this final, like, I release you of your burden. <laughs> like, what, like, is there a confetti? I'm like, that would be a lot of uh, groundwork for us because we've helped over 4 million people. So that'd be a lot of, yeah. lo- a lot of confetti. And then we got the environmental problem. Right. <laughs> a lot of confetti. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It would be a lot. A lot of champagne. I don't, yeah, it'd be a lot. No, we, what we do, first of all, the debts tend to be at least a year old because the house does it is required like by regulation they have to try to collect that could be sending one letter it could be sending two letters it depends and so every hospital is different and the thing is when you've seen one hospital and their approach to collections you've seen one hospital and their approach to collections so there is no like what's the standard there's some norms but there's really differences like for example not all hospitals sell their debt roughly and this is like i'm not even 100 percent sure like but it's roughly like 30 percent of hospitals that sell their debt so not even all hospitals sell their their debt to begin with. But we do get hospitals to sell to us that don't normally sell to other for-profit debt buyers, which is, I think, important. But so you're that individual. We would not have access to your file and your debt and when until a hospital engages with us and agrees to work with us. So that's an important element of our model is that hospitals have to be interested in working with us and say yes to this debt relief. Once we get a hospital involved, we will get their entire bad debt portfolio. So you, if you are debt of that 40, uh, four, what did you say, $45,000, mm-hmm. then we would send letters in mass like we do to every other individual that's in that thousands at one time that basically saying we are RIP medical debt. We have relieved your debt. You are free and clear. Check us out. We're for real. Like, believe us. And oh, yeah. But there's a lot of, sure. Right. Where, where's the timeshare agreement? Right. And you don't have to do anything. And the other thing that's really important is there's no tax burden associated with it. When, when certain debts are relieved, there can be a tax burden because considered a gift equal to the amount of the debt that's been Yikes. Right. Exactly. So could you imagine you get a debt relieved and then you get a tax bill? It's like when you win the lotto and you have to pay taxes. You're like, what? <laughs> the good news is sour. But with RIP medical debt, that is not the case because we are a disinterested third party. So you get this debt relief free and clear. And honestly, the the debt relief happens whether or not you actually pay attention to the letter. It really can just continue to do what you're doing, which was ignore the problem and hope it goes away, which I have to say, never work. I can't use the word never because apparently sometimes that works. Well, I mean, look, the people who we're, we're helping, though, at the end of the day, Everyone, I mean, we get the stories back from individuals. Mm. They want so desperately to pay. They really do. And they feel like failures because they haven't been able to pay. Mm-hmm. So these are people who are just like, well, let's hope for the best. I'll just keep ignoring this. And, you know, these are individuals who something happened to them. Either they got sick, they were in an accident, whatever happened to them. Maybe they just are poor like and and have other obligations they have to pay for and they can't pay this bill and so we are relieving those debts of individuals who were forced to pay a bill that they should have never been forced to pay because it's unaffordable to them yeah because clearly they had that desire to pay it back but not the means by which to do it what for 
<laughs> medical prices are not exactly accurate in the United States. I don't know if the word is accurate. They are all over the place because we have this weird system where the insurance company is paying and the prices are artificial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you operate as an individual in a system designed for these large players that are charging what they will, it just breaks, it seems like, and you're just left with outrageous numbers. And that breaks. I think that we've created a... a, a typical consumer approach to healthcare and it doesn't work like the economics don't align when you're buying healthcare first of all you would pay a lot more than you would for any other good or service right because it's your health and your well-being so like you're artificially willing to to pay more and i think we take a little bit of advantage of that in some ways and and i think that the fact that we have insurance companies that are negotiating what to pay is makes it complicated and it's really hard to navigate this as an individual nor i think should we have that expectation that people while they're sick should be navigating what they're going to pay for a service that they have really no real way of doing comparison shopping on this is very different than a lot of other models that i see and you must and i see it on the site saying if you're an individual looking for medical debt relief, that is not us. And that must be hard because you are, you know, behind the curtain that's behind the curtain running in debt markets, which frankly, you know, this may be the first time many people are hearing about this. I'm curious, how, how did this organization come about? It's been around for, for a while. Well, I mean, actually, we've only been around since 2014, so it's not that old considering. I mean, a lot of nonprofits are 100 years old, you know. We, we're, we've only been around since 2014, and we, we, came, we came into being because we have two uh, former debt buyers who understood the market. I think that was a key element of it. Craig and Jerry understood uh, how the debt market works and what it costs to buy debt. They were inspired by Occupy Wall Street, actually, uh, and they saw that there was this group doing this thing called the Jubilee, where they were trying to do just what RIP does in, in large scale, which is to buy medical debt and relieve it, but to make a point. And they recruited, actually, Jerry's help in this, and then Jerry recruited Craig, and then they sort of made their point as part of the Occupy Wall Street movement, and they were going to pack up and go home, kind of, on, on this whole debt relief front. And I think Jerry sort of said to Craig, like, we got to make this a real thing. And so they did. They, they really, they, and I think that they have a book that, that they put out t talking about this. You can find it on our website. It's called End Medical Debt. And it tells sort of the origin story of, of RIP and, and, and how they thought about this. And one of the key moments that really helped the organization propel forward was being highlighted on John Oliver, which, you know, I'm a big fan of. I was before I got this role and knew about RIP medical debt, but he really did some debt relief through the institution. And, uh, and that propelled a lot of donors to come to the table because without donors, this really doesn't work. I mean, I can go to the debt market all I want, but if I don't have a lot of people supporting my ability to buy the debt, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So that's our story. It was two debt buyers who were brave. They took some they almost went into poverty on, on, on their own because of the fact that they they took this uh, 
this on and they just thought this was too good of an idea to let go. And again, John Oliver helped propel us. And then the board of directors, you know, said, let's take it to the next level. And and then I came in as a, as a seasoned executive director type and, and we were able to really uh, propel this work forward and we're going to keep doing that. Yeah. I mean, 24, I mean, you made it through some filter bubbles for sure in terms of like the filtering of can you make it five years? Can you make it over a, a certain amount of revenue? But you're starting to uh, really pull pull through. It also strikes me because medical debt is the number one reason someone declares bankruptcy. And it seems like this is uh, something that may slow that down. But I don't know how big you need to be. Like billions of dollars that you have done. Four million people, I think you said. Like, those are big numbers. How big do you actually need to be in your mind to, I'm not going to use the word solve, because you, you are not solving, you are resolving a broken system that will continue to break things. But how big do you need to be to take this actually on at the level that you'd imagine? Yeah, I, it's a good question. And it's one I often think about as an executive director, or sorry, as a, as a CEO of the institution. It's one I often think what I would say is that we need to both be a certain size and relieving a certain amount of debt every year. And I don't know what exactly what that number is. It really depends on the donation size. Maybe it's 10 million, maybe it's 20 million. I like the number 25 in terms of our budget size every year. Uh, I'd love to grow to that size. And, and you know, we're, we're more than halfway there already today, make consistent revenue, but, you know, we'll see. But the other thing is, I, I loved how you framed it and said, we're not solving, but, but resolving this, the issue. And that's 100% true. And that is our mantra. What I want to make sure is that we're not just trying to grow to a size that picks up and just keeps resolving the issue. But at, in the process of resolving the issue for individuals, we are very intentional about telling the larger story about the issue of medical debt and how systemic in nature it is. And that we are very intentional about pushing for larger changes that are above our pay grade as an institution. And so to me, that is really the key. So our size almost doesn't matter as much as our voice. And so by growing our voice within this work and growing our expertise and taking the data that we are getting in mass, so we're having a deeper understanding of how many people uh, we, how many people we're helping, what their situation is, what is their race, what is their economic situation, where do they live? Is this is this problem more prevalent at certain types of hospitals, nonprofit versus for profit? I think over time we'll be able to take a deeper look at our data collectively as we do more and more direct hospital work and contribute to this issue in a larger scale, and be able to hopefully push for. Uh, larger solutions that are above, again, our pay grade and who we are. So the debt, we were talking about this before, the debt that an individual incurs, going back to like, here's a, my $45,000 in surprise debt that I now owe. I have a family. Uh, we live you know, in a house we're doing all right, but this is something that frankly does not fit into the budget, not even by a long time. Uh, I may not go into bankruptcy, but it seems like there is a like actual adverse medical effect to having debt. 
there's like a relationship to having this like held over my head that has negative consequences. I think we were talking about the JAMA report or other reports out there that suggest that like, I mean, it's just so, it hurts my brain to put it in the order of logic that like I went to the hospital to get better and now I'm probably going to get worse because of the overpriced and debt that now chases me indefinitely. Can you tell me a bit about that relationship of debt to stress? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is the number one theme that we see in the letters that come back from individuals mm. we help. Uh, it's overwhelming for individuals. And, you know, stress is itself undermining of health. And financial stress, stress is one of the biggest things. And we look at poor communities and we see, uh, you know, diabetes. We see all these stress-related diseases, heart issues that are all stress-related, that are more extreme. Uh, and so in, in terms of medical debt, it is in itself a social determinant of health. And the social determinant of health is something that hospitals have increasingly been looking at and are spending millions, billion dollars, billions of dollars across the country trying to invest in community programs that address social determinants of health. And yet, as this JAMA report that came out just recently shows, the medical debt created from going to the hospital itself is a social determinant of health. So if, if we can really look at medical debt itself, we can actually get rid of one of the stressors that's causing people to have to go to the hospital or get care to, in the first place. So I think it's a really key issue that you're raising and one that we want to make sure that we keep elevating. Because again, these providers, these hospitals are investing lots and lots of money into social determinants of health. Those are things like environmental situations, family dynamic, you know, lot, things that are in the environment, not your own personal health, you know, living in a food desert, all those kinds of things contribute to the undermining of health. And it's a, it determines how well you're going to be healthy, hence, hence the social determinant of health language. And so the fact that medical debt itself is among those is something we need to really look at. And I'm so grateful that there is this new report that points to this because I think it will create pressure to re-examine billing and practices at hospitals. And I think this is the JAMA network uh, that, that put this out, but we'll put a link in the, the show notes on it because there's a, certainly a lot in there. And it's one of those things I'm glad somebody did the research on and I am now forced to think about it, but also I'm sadly not surprised. I'm not surprised that having, uh, you know, the, the threat of somebody putting a lien on the house that, you know, my kid lives in, like wouldn't cause me stress. Like I go, I went in because I broke my ankle. Right. I went in because I broke my and I walk out like two years later with diabetes and other stress related disorders that puts me back on that bill. Like, Well, not only that, but the other, on top of that, the other stressor is that people don't go to that hospital because they're scared they're either going to incur more debt because they have had some or they know of a friend or family member that's had debt and that it's put them in a, you know, difficult situation. And so they don't go and get the care that they need. People are sitting outside of hospitals waiting to see if the pain dissipates before they walk in or they're just ignoring it and, you know, putting, you know, Ben Gay on their knee over and over and over again and taking out yeah. trying to ignore the problem until it gets to a point where it's actually even more expensive to solve and to address. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the size of the product, you know, it's, what I like is that this is a pretty 
smart and leveraged play at an intractable problem. Like the, the scale that you need to play at, and I'll just play, oh, I'm going to show my own hand. I don't think it's solved by GoFundMe. No. Truly just, it is. And you also even brought up the tax issue. And I'm pretty sure if I got my 45 grand from people giving me money and it showed up as a check, I now owe at least a third of that, I think, in taxes, depending on where I am. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how the GoFundMe works in terms of the tax system, but it's definitely a popularity contest. How I mean, that? that's the problem because, I mean, for GoFundMe to work, you, you need to tell your story effectively enough to have people give to you over yeah. others. GoFundMe is like the number one thing people go to. Like they go to GoFundMe for medical debt. It's the number one reason go to GoFundMe. And most of them do not work. They do not meet, reach their goals. And certainly you're not going to reach your goal if you have an ongoing medical issue. Like what if you have a chronic condition? You can't keep going back to the well and begging your friends and family, not to mention the fact that a lot of people are able to get money if they have friends with money. And people with money tend to have other friends with money. People without money tend to have friends without money. So the, the, the GoFundMe is absolutely not a solution. And it really is a popularity contest. It's how well you're able to tell your sob story. And I just think that's a really heartbreaking situation that we're putting people in to have to put themselves out there in that way in order to solve their medical debt issues. Yeah. The, you know. Mm -hmm. Frankly, it's, it's not really the, the individual is supposed to do everything they can in their power. And so if your back is to the wall, I understand the market forces they're pushing there, but there's only one winner in that. It's the person that takes 2% of transaction. If you were looking at a macro system, something like RIP medical debt, uh, I'm wondering if, you know, just to sort of speculate on it, are there other areas where you feel like financial levers at markets even are unexplored avenues or this type of impact? I mean, I think that there's probably other kinds of unaffordable debt that could be looked at for sure. The thing is, medical debt is unique. And I do think that people are potentially more willing to donate to uh, medical debt causes because you have such little control over the situation. You, you can be insured. Most people actually are insured. 90% of Americans are insured today. Yet, 41% have medical debt. So it is not a matter of having insurance. So you can do everything right. You can have insurance. You can still and are likely actually to get medical debt. In fact, the, the number one cause of medical debt is, is or, or directional relationship is not whether or not you have insurance, but whether or not you get sick. Like, so you're, that's, that's the number one connector, which is, that means you can be insured. So I think, at the end of the day, we can't look at things like GoFundMe for the solutions here. I think you're right that it is uh, just creating more profit on top of a, a profitable system. Yeah, we, we have to we have to look at, at bigger solutions beyond beyond this. And I think that that our model could be used for other areas. But I think that people are more likely to give to medical debt because of the fact that there's so much little control over how much debt you end up in. People are less forgiving. If you end up overusing your credit card or even yeah. the utility bill, honestly. Yeah, the story obviously, obviously matters, but also, you know, I'd say your ability to, as you came back to it, say like, you're able to go through and understand the data behind the actual communities that you're choosing to go for. 
And just to track back in the conversation, you're like, in your ideal world, you're like, I think we have about $25 million worth of work you wish you could do every year in this. Yeah, I think 25 million feels right today. Now, I don't know. I mean, ask me, you know, in, in a year from now, how, how we feel about that. But I think 25 million gives us a pretty steady pace of doing debt relief in mass right, for individuals while also investing in our own ability to tell the story of medical debt, because that's important, right? Like not every dollar do we only spend on medical debt. We spend a lot, almost every dollar on medical debt relief, but we also are intentional about investing in storytelling so that individuals can be heard and that we're, we're thinking about what is it, what it feels like to have medical debt. And what are the implications on your mental health? What are your struggles with the hospital finance system? What is it like for your family every single day when you have this thing looming over your head? How have you avoided care? What other trade-offs and decisions have you made? Have you borrowed from friends and family? All of those kinds of things. So we're investing in different systems, but I think 25 million feels good as an annual like rate of our budget size because I think that gives us a large scale uh, ability to relieve debt across the country for a lot of people again and and lifting up the stories at the same time yeah yeah well just i mean i won't call out your 990 but it, it is all public and so you're you're hoping to grow there it seems Yes, we're hoping to grow there. That's right. I mean, we've had we've been uh, lucky to get a fifty million dollar gift from Mackenzie Scott, uh, which is Jeff Bezos's ex wife, and she's been wonderful in the nonprofit sector and able to really push organizations forward. But that's a one time gift, right? We're yeah. able to multiple years, but we have to be careful about you not expanding our staff to have an expectation that that's going to be our per permanent bottom line. So we pay a lot of attention to that reality. And so that's propelled us forward in a lot of good ways and allowed us to invest in even ways in which we can donate and become more, you know, ways in which we can maximize our ability to fundraise. And then also look at our own systems become more efficient so that we don't need as much staff. Uh, so we've done those two things with those funds but we need to grow to, I think, a, a permanent like $25 million size where it's year after year we're able to support that level. And that makes sense. Part of my mind, I keep going back to this $45,000 family that just ran into this just stroke of unlock. And, you know, following through the pattern, like it, it is amazing that there is RIP medical debt that may show up like in some ways like a lottery ticket that you're like, I didn't know I was playing this one, but I won. And like, frankly, I've lost enough. That's amazing. But I wonder if there's a world where the probability that I have to pay my full debt could be made more publicly known to me. And I know there's also nonprofit hospitals that technically, if they're serving the public benefit, actually are uh, due to absolve some of that debt as well. But I feel as though you're not told the full truth when you're handed that bill for your, you know, scan, your PT scan. And you're like, the what and your overnight visit there's no like and by the way you know the probability if you're in this area and you make this much that if you just wait frankly one year and don't pay this like nothing bad will happen because the converse is true we've been taught to pay every bill that shows up to us because that's how you are an honest participant in our uh economic society what does that look like <laughs> 
Yeah. So it's, that's a difficult question to answer because I don't think we're in enough hospitals yet by any stretch to, for anyone to feel confident or comfortable to just- You're just going to run around and catch that fly ball. Yeah. Right. And also we're still investing in our fundraising abilities. I don't know. At some point, maybe people are exhausted about paying for this too. And our issue becomes not as exciting. You know, we, we are competing, frankly, for donate donor dollars with things like Ukraine or abortion rights or gun rights. You know, so there are, there is a limitation to how much I can guarantee that I'm going to be able to relieve people's debt. And also remember that in order for me to relieve your debt, you have to be financially burdened, right? So you have to be 400% of poverty or below, or the debt has to be large compared to your income. So I would be leery of people feeling comfortable with the idea that eventually- Not pay. By the way, this is not financial advice. I repeat, this is not profit (laughs) podcast. This is not financial advice. Right. And, and, And I will say, frankly, you know, there is some concern on the hospital provider side that that if they work with us, that that's that that will happen, right? That if that people will bush think, well, I don't have to pay my bill. So I don't think that that's a good. Wow, way. I didn't even think of that, but right, oh. that that's a that's a good way. Clearly, not, you have thought about this as the same. Yeah, exactly, and it's not something I would say we've experienced. What we've experienced is people who can pay their bills do pay their bills. There's people in the middle, right? That also pay their bills, but to a, a large extent where it's a, a difficult situation for them to pay the bills, I would like to address those people as well. Like they sign up for a payment plan that they can't afford. What I would advise people is to not sign up for payment plans that they can't afford. If it's $700 a month and that's going to create a real financial burden on you and your family, then do not sign up for it, despite all of the pressure that you might feel from the debt collector. If it's an individual entity or if it's the hospital themselves. So that's what I would advise. Unfortunately, as much as I hate having to tell people to be their own advocates, the system is set up that it expects you to be an advocate for yourself. And so you have to advocate for yourself and make sure that you don't sign up for things that you can't afford. Oh, what a mess. They just... What a mess. In my mind, I'm just saying like, well, what if I just wait? Like I had my $45,000 debt and I just waited out. I'm like, I'm going to buy this back on a penny on the dollar in a year. I'm going to come back to you as a kind of broker and I'm just going to buy it back. Yeah, but you you can't do that, right? You don't, you're not going to have the negotiating power and that I can collectively. And you can't come to RAP and say, well, look, I got this one debt. I'm in Texas. Hear me out. <laughs> I mean, you can't. I will. Donate (laughs) over here for the help my ankle get better fund. Right, exactly. Doesn't doesn't work. No, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. But I do. But I will say this: when we work with hospitals, and increasingly so, our vision is for when we work with hospitals that they take a look at their financial assistance policies. And try because you're right. Hospitals, especially nonprofit hospitals, mm-hmm. are supposed to give out charity care. They're supposed to focus on low income individuals. That was that C three classification in the old taxis. Yes, exactly. But the thing is that hospitals don't really get that classification taken away. Like that's not that's not a thing that really happens that yeah. frequently. I and I and I don't I don't mean to imply at all that hospitals don't take that seriously. I think they take it very seriously. Their their nonprofit status. 
And again, not all hospitals are alike. There are some bad actors and there are some that are genuinely struggling. Right now, hospitals are not really in a great financial place. Now, compared to some of the patients, they're probably better off. It depends, you know, on the situation. But hospitals are supposed to provide charity care, bottom line. And so they are not necessarily as generous as our program. So there's people in between, like some of them could be 200% of poverty, or there's discounts provided at 300% of poverty, not the full, you know, getting it all relieved like RIP does. So we do hope, though, that by Doing an analysis of their bad debt file, people, that means people that did not get charity care whose debt we are buying, that we're able to give them information that helps them reflect on their own charity care policies and approaches, like letting people actually know about the charity care, making sure the application process is not too burdensome. In fact, we encourage hospitals to do what's called presumptive eligibility, meaning that they just take a look on their own by buying data from, tra- from TransUnion like we do or any other, you know, Equifax, whatever, buying the data, looking at people's incomes and making assumptions about whether or not they deserve or, you know, can get charity care based on their income. And then they just give it without, just like we do, we just give it away. We let people know that they've gotten this free kick, this debt release without them having to fill out any paperwork or anything like that. So that's so interesting. I didn't realize you're not looking at EII, personally identifiable information, to the degree where you see maybe a name and an address. You're getting like top line stats on somebody or could you do like do the search for, you know, George Weiner in Texas who's got 45K in debt. You're like, oh, I found you. You're there. When we get a, when we get a file, for, so we're HIPAA compliant, right? So we, we yeah. have a PAA with the hospital and, and we, you know, we do keep, uh, we're very vigilant about our, our cybersecurity and all of that other stuff. But, and we, we have to be able to have the information of the individual or else we wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. let them know about the fact that we've relieved their debt. Right? You do know it. Yeah, right. So we do have that information, but. When we analyze a file from a hospital, we're doing it in the aggregate. We're not focusing on the individual at all. We're completely ignoring the individual's name and all of that stuff. All we're focusing on is those elements that qualify them. And so we take the entire part that qualifies, and that's what we hold on to. And then we send out the letters after we've bought that debt, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. I love still in my mind, I'm thinking like, there's technically a way I could go through and be like, my name comes up. Let's just say I'd be uh, encouraged to make a donation. Never do it, but would it open up a second? Yeah, you know, go get my debt for me. No, Binder. you know, we'd never ever look. Uh, we would not. We don't give away the names of the individuals that we. Have. If people want to tell their stories, they are encouraged to do so, and we let them do that. And they can put their stories on their on our website, and they can talk to our anthropologist. But we would never tell a donor you helped X Y Z person, ever. No, that's fair. I was saying in reverse, like the the person who's like in distress. Like, could I go search a database to be like, oh, I'm in this distressed category of people, but you can't open up that up because of HIPAA. Yeah. Well, you need to find out if we already relieved your debt. If it's already gone, we, we would have or, notified you. Oh, thank you for humoring me. I'm such a <laughs> rabbit hole runner. That's even a thing. All right, we're going to move to rapid fire okay. with your permission. Please keep your responses as short as you feel like they yeah. feel like. Okay. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Max QDA, which is a qualitative data analysis visualization tool. 
cool. What are some tech issues you're currently battling with? Well, we're making sure that our cybersecurity is SOC 2 compliant. So we're really focused on that and we're super excited about that. And we also are trying to send people emails in addition to hard copy letters. And so we're working to incorporate that into our model right now. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? The ability to enhance how we analyze our data, specifically with a focus on race. Talk about a mistake that you made and or maybe earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today. Creating space for everyone who's a stakeholder, be it on the board, on your team, a uh, donor, to make their voice heard and to be part of decision-making. By not doing that, I think you really undermine everyone's buy-in to what you're doing and the direction you're headed. And that was a mistake I made out of my career that I have overcorrected for probably. <laughs> Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business? I sure hope so. I really do. I think that nonprofits are generally not set up to solve problems, but resolve them in your words. And I hope that nonprofits can have a greater voice in getting systemic change so that they can help solve problems at a larger scale. If I were to put you in the hot tub time machine back to the beginning of your work at RIP Medical Debt, what advice would you give your drier self? To focus on the progress over the mistakes so that I could feel more excited about the work that I'm doing going forward and less stressed. Uh, if I were to give you a magic wand to wave across the industry you work in, what would it do? And you can't say just clean up every single bit of debt. <laughs> across the industry. Uh, I, would I would say, if I say the industry, I'm talking about the nonprofit industry at large. I would say improves the marketing of the industry. I think that we get a, a, a skewed view as if we're the secondary industry that's sort of just doing what everyone calls God's work, which I hate. I think that we are doing an essential fundamental, fundamental function for society and that it takes real skill that not everybody has and not everyone can, from a for-profit business can just jump in and do and take over and do well. And I think that I would do a better job of marketing who we are and how important we are as an, as an industry in terms of nonprofits. What is something you think you should stop doing? Uh, sometimes I think we put our heads down too much and do the day-to-day -day work, you know, going in and out of meetings, taking, checking off our to-do list. And I think we need to stop doing that as much and put our, pick our heads up and look at the big picture and appreciate what we've accomplished. How did you get your start in the social impact sector? I don't have a good answer for that. I feel like it's a calling for me, as lame and cheesy as that sounds. I've always uh, felt like I needed to work in a mission-driven uh, capacity, and so here I am. What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the sector? Make sure that you have a strong ethical and moral compass and that you have people to talk to to ensure you stay with that because money and donors even can really influence you in a way that's not always good. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or did not heed? 
finding balance in my life, both in terms of work happiness and personal happiness. To be clear, you heeded that advice? I did, yes. I'm very happy in both work life and my That question could have gone the other way there. It's <laughs> right. been a real dark turn. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, how do people find you? How do people help you? Well, first, donate to us, please. Uh, RIPmedicaldebt.org. I can't do this work without that. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, just at RIP Medical Debt. But I really encourage you to, uh, to take a look at our website, check us out, and, and talk about the issue with medical debt, uh, how it impacts you. One of the biggest problems with this issue is that people feel like they've personally failed when the reality is the system is broken. And you have to remember that. And unless we talk about it in our personal stories, this issue is going to be with us and it's going to be killing us slowly, literally. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for uh, just uh, continuing to, to make this a national issue and an avenue to finally put dollars to work, I think, in a high leverage way. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 